This episode is brought to you by AudioQuest, makers of the mythical series Analog Interconnects. Click the link in the show notes for more information. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. This time out, we're talking to one Yermo Kernka. Did I say that right, Yermo, your name? Yeah, the pre-name was perfect, the first name. Uh, Kernka would be the second one, but it was really, really good for an English speaker. So thanks a lot. Yermo Kernka of Sennheiser. You're the product manager for Sennheiser? Uh, yeah, exactly, for the Audiofile headphones. Uh, audio file headphones, yes, because we are we are gathered here today to talk about the IE series of IEMs that you've been making for the last couple of years, and mainly because you sent me them. And I, to be honest, like everybody told me, Yermo, when I said that I wanted to review the IE nine hundred, a lot of my YouTube audience said, "No, no, no, you want to listen to the IE six hundred, and the six <laughs> hundred are good, very good, but I much prefer the nine hundred. I really do. There's, some, there's, there's something very special going on there. And I thought I'll get you on the podcast to talk about basically what you did, because you've got, I think, this true response driver in the 300, the 600, the 900, and the 200 as well. Is that right? Uh, yeah, exactly. And all our audiophile new in-ears that have been released since then. Yeah. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about the true response driver and you know what, what, what basically what is it? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> so honestly, uh, I'll have to go quite a bit back. So um, it's a bit of a history lesson. So I think it was something like 2006 or 2007 when uh, the back then Audiofile product manager highlighted that, okay, we need a very high performance uh, in-ear driver, so very small transducer, uh, because back then Sennheiser didn't have much experience with that sort of uh, transducer. And mm -hmm. uh, the funny thing about them is that they work practically reverse from open transducers so um that that open transducers say uh decrease in in amplitude below their resonance frequency so that is why you mm. see in open headphones dynamic ones that they usually decrease below 100 or 80 hertz or whatever the resonance frequency is mm. um and if you've worked all your life with this sort of transducer then it is your normal assumption to just shrink that down to a small size and off you go. Mm -hmm. uh, and the funny thing is that actually in-ear drivers, they stay perfectly flat in a closed acoustic system below the resonance frequency. So you have never a bass problem with an in-ear. Um, and, and then they, uh, in theory, they decrease in the top end. Um, so, so the way you have to design the driver is, is much different. You aim for a much higher resonance frequency. While in open headphones, you aim for very low frequency. Anyhow, okay. so that is okay. um, why it had a bit of a learning curve for Sennheiser internally to get used to this sort of technology. Um, and, and so the people back then were super creative and they looked at a billion different ideas. And uh, in the end, what they came out with is this 70 meter design, um, which is to us the magic number that on the one hand enables brilliance because the smaller the transducer, the... Um, the less surface there is. And you see that also in loudspeakers that tweet tweeters tend to not be enormous <laughs> yes. usually. And uh, so that helps a lot just with getting more high frequencies out of it. It helps with ergonomics. So the plan back then was to put the transducer into the ear canal 
Um, so that is very important for that. And on the other hand, it is still big enough to uh, to have quite a bit of excursion to produce a very powerful bass. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you go to an even smaller size, like five millimeters or even smaller than that, then you will run into usually into a problem with with bass response, um, especially if you go to, then for ANC or something. Um, mm-hmm. Or um, it's also very hard to manufacture them. So the smaller it gets, um, the the more variance you get just by normal variation. So if you have a little bit too much glue, for instance, in it, or um, I don't know, if the coil is a little bit off center, the smaller the transducer is, the the bigger the impact of that. So it is not only mm-hmm. the I- idealistic approach of what sounds best, but also how can we actually build it. So um, that was basically the birth hour of the 70mm transducer with these considerations and the experience the engineers had back then. And um, the first iteration was then released in a product in 2012 with a IE800, which had a handmade transducer. Uh, we called mm. it a SIS-7. And um, I, I think it, it, it sounded quite spectacular and it is a good um, example of the traditional Sennheiser in-ear tuning which is uh, another funny topic we can dive in at a later point. Um, uh, but, but in the end, I think it is uh, it has been the best dynamic tr- uh, in-ear back in the mm-hmm. day. Um, and then um, the transducer was insanely expensive to build because it was really handmade and it was really complicated to do. So if you build something like that in Germany, then you are restricted to only put this sort of transducer into something costing a thousand euros, which is yeah. not ideal. Um, and so um, we also saw strategically, okay, at some point people will want more in-ear headphones again. And uh, we didn't have a good platform back then. And so the idea was born, okay, let's let's try to automate the manufacturing process of this very expensive 7-meter driver. Mm-hmm. Um, and there also the people worked for, I think, five years in total. It was uh, a huge effort also financially. So it, it was close really to... Um, or I, I can't disclose the exact numbers, but you can imagine it around 10 million euros. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is a, so that is what the manufacturing line costs in the end. Um, so hang on, that, can, I just, can, I, can I just stop you there? Because yeah. I, I just want to double check this with you, right? So you're yeah. saying you spent five years on R&D. Yeah. Right, and then 10 million euros on that R&D. Yeah. Uh, or yeah, or, or on the capital expenditure, so so on the manufacturing of the manufacturing line, but the uh, let's say the the R and D cost of paying the engineers at, on our side is not included in that number. And again, just to reiterate, this is just uh, the the number of general size what you can imagine the investment in. Um, so that is, yeah, uh, and that doesn't, in, and this is really only the automation process of the transducer. Mm-hmm. So this is not basically the the initial concept and development of the original SIS 7 transducer, which was made handmade and which mm-hmm. was made like for five years before that. <laughs> um, so so right. in some, it, it, it probably took around 10 years. Um, so basically uh, you, you did the R&D so that you could ma- manufacture in Germany the true response seven millimeter driver. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, okay. And also to that, um, so, so the machine was built up then in 2017, 2018 in, in Germany. And mm-hmm. um, that that really combines then all these, uh, what we think is the ideal, um, in the end, it is always a compromise that you make. Um, the ideal compromise for, for an in-ear transducer uh, and produce it at a very, very good consistency. And that is the advantage of the automated process that, of course, an automated machine can center a coil, for instance, 
much easier mm -hmm. than a human on a uh, on a transducer. Um, just in the same as an example. So um, it even improved the performance in that way, but of course made the individual effort to build a transducer much lower and allowed us to scale it and build it also into our true wireless devices. So, so the, the true the true response driver is in the the true wireless three earphone. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I see. That's interesting because I, I bought a pair of those. Mm -hmm. I think they're fantastic, and I, they're so good. Actually, I got my girlfriend to buy a pair because her Ooh, AirPods awesome. gave up on her because mm -hmm. she's using an Android phone it, it now, and it's a bit more complicated for AirPods. <laughs> and she loves the new True Wireless Three. Oh, so, awesome! Nice to yeah. Hear. Oh, I see. So you were looking to build or design and build a driver that had, well, I guess hit the the seven millimeter sweet spot for you that you could then put into a whole different range of products yeah so, exactly oh i see that makes more sense okay right gotcha i'm sorry for being slow on this but obviously i'm not aware of the backstory yeah no, no it's um and i mean it's always that you change your perspective so much when you're on the manufacturing side or the customer side that some things just uh you need some time to get used to it if you will um mm -hmm. yeah um but but that was uh, the idea behind it um, so, so that that we can really have this really what we think is the best in ear sound, even in uh, more affordable and main mainstream devices. And I completely mm -hmm. agree with you that probably the uh, the momentum to wireless three is really my, the best sounding in ear. And uh, yeah, I, I mean for wireless devices. And uh, to me, it's also probably one of the best tuned in ears overall. So of course, it doesn't appeal to every taste, but it is a very very uh, let's say safe tuning that probably won't upset very many people mm -hmm. and still gives you a lot of details. So I think that's uh, a really, really great uh, work there by Werner who, who tuned it um, and who was one of my favorite engineers at the company. Okay. Um, anyhow, but, but um, so so that is, I guess, uh, the, the backstory of the true response transducer. Um, so in our opinion, really the best compromise that, that you can make uh, just, just in terms of of philosophy because we sometimes get asked that or why not put in two transducers or or, or whatever or ba yes yes um, so um that is actually a request that we got that why, why don't you do two dynamic drivers into into one earphone that would be twice as good right <laughs> and uh, and uh, and when i tell that to one of our engineers he asks why um because it has been really conceived as a single transducer a single small transducer that can uh, transmit the entire frequency response faithfully. Um, so really from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it has this excursion power for bass impact, but it also has a lot of brilliance and it is, has mm -hmm. one of the best high frequency extensions of any in-ear on the market. So it will be very, very hard to find something that has significantly more extension beyond 10 kilohertz, for instance. Um, so, so that is... And at the same time, it has a lot of headroom. So it goes up to something like 128 dB in certain frequencies. Okay. Which is more than most people need. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That would uh, take your ears out. And so the question is okay, why, why would you actually want to add anything to that? Um, but, but that is really, um, what also what, what precedes me basically by quite a few years. So that was before the, even the conception of the true response transducer. It was in the early 2000s when there was already an evaluation of should we go with dynamic transducers or BAs maybe in, in years. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a thorough examination of the products on the market. And uh, of course, us trying ourselves also at this 
uh, experiment of of building crossover systems and so on. And in the end, uh, back then the engineers already felt that if you put multiple transducers into such a small space that you lose some sort of coherency in there. Mm. So in loudspeakers, actually, you already have it. If you have an impulse response in a loudspeaker, not all uh, transducers respond at the same time. So right. the yes. tweeter, the subwoofer, they will all move in uh, in succession mm -hmm. and, and not naturally like it should be as one. And uh, and so in general, we believe that is actually one of the main benefits of our headphones compared to loudspeakers that they have this very pure sound that is not disturbed by crossovers by different transducers mm -hmm. moving at different points in time and so on, which are in essence unnatural, and that we much rather stay with a very coherent sound, which we can show measurably that that it distorts less, that it has more headroom, so that the like the technical elements are covered, um, and. On the other hand, when we listen to it, it also sounds amazing. And that is, of course, the gold test that we go for. Technical stuff is, is funny and interesting, but, but in the end, we, we want to listen and, and be satisfied that, uh, that this is how, how the music sounds great to us. Mm. Am I allowed to ask you what the true response driver is made from? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, I, I can't tell you the exact material, but it is, uh, um, it is, uh, a polymer blend, as we mm -hmm. say. So it is not just one specific plastic. Um, but, but we combine different plastics in one soup, if you will, uh -huh. and mix it up to, um, to combine different properties. So, uh, to dive right deep in into the technical terms is that, um, for a transducer, you look at the, um, uh, complex, Young's modulus in German, it's uh, elasticity modulus, but it basically defines um, how much a material deforms under pressure. Okay, um, and that is of course important how uh, how a driver excurses, for instance, or how stiff it is, or how how easy it um, yeah reproduces space, whatever. Okay, so um, you try to create a very uh, and it's complex because this behavior changes over frequency. So it's not the same at 1,000 hertz as it would be at 20 hertz, for instance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that makes it a bit, bit more complicated, of course. And um, what we found already decades ago is that um, that singular materials usually don't, do not have all the benefits we want. So, for example, if you take a very stiff material, then uh, it can follow usually the treble relatively well. But the stiffer a material is, um, the, the, the higher its resonances are. So, or, or the the harsher they are, mm -hmm. um, and also usually bass is a problem for these systems if they are overall very stiff. Um, and on the other hand, if you have something that is just soft and that would be maybe good for for excursion for bass response or something, um, you usually have a lot of partial vibrations in it, so that um, in the treble. So that means that the transducer doesn't move as one, but that it breaks up into different surfaces at high frequencies because one part of the transducer cannot follow the coil, which is the motor of the transducer. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just moving too fast. So that is uh, a big problem with bigger transducers, especially. Anyhow, back then they found they find the best solution by laminating actually to two different foils. Um, and uh, that approach has been used in the HG600, HD800, for instance, um, 
and um, that combines a very stiff plastic, which which follows the treble quite faithfully. And on the other hand, uh, a polyurethane, which is um, very soft, which has a lot of water in it, so it has dampening effects. Mm-hmm. So, so the resonate, re- resonances of the stiff material are cancelled out, if you will, or at least dampened down. Mm. And on the other hand, also still allow you some flexibility in the bass region. So this has been a, a really for large headphones, this has been amazing. Um, but this didn't quite work out for in-ears um, because the in-ear transducer is much smaller and um, so you also have a much thinner membrane. And if you want to laminate two different materials, then you obviously need the two foils to be made up of an even thinner material to mm-hmm. <laughs> to make that up. And and then again, the the uh, it is not the idealistic part of what would be ideal, but the manufacturing part. So if you then have a... So, for instance, uh, I think the transducer thickness in the in-ears is roughly 15 micrometers. Oh, wow. So, okay. so that would be yeah. a quarter of a human hair. And uh-huh. um, and if you have then one part, let's say you want to laminate it, and you have one 10 micrometer foil and a 5 micrometer foil, first, these foils would be extremely, extremely, um, yeah, le- let's say, um, just during production, they would be very susceptible to any kind of damage. Right, you tear them a little bit, and a five micrometer co- foil would immediately just uh, rip apart because it's okay. just so thin. And on the other hand, um, it is the variation. So if the one five micrometer foil is then suddenly seven micrometers, then suddenly the entire behavior of the transducer has changed because now it's a lot stiffer than you wanted it to be. Um, so, so laminating is is at that scale not very reasonable anymore. Uh, and so we needed a different solution, and and the polymer blend is then something that um, that also uses the same sort of ingredients, but instead of lamination, they are then cooked together in a soup, and we have one uniform foil out of it, which is a lot more consistent in its uh, manufacturability. And uh, I, I know manufacturability is not the sexiest topic to talk about, but for us, if, especially once we go to scale, it is super super important that the customer not only uh, has to get lucky to get a good product, but that <laughs> but that every product is really good. <laughs> right, you want some consistency in your production, obviously, <laughs> because then you get a bad reputation if somebody like me, for example, got a got a bad pair and made a video about it. Now, into which uh, of the IE series was it the IE three hundred that came first? Uh, yeah, exactly. It, it came first in January twenty twenty one. Okay. And then what came after that was the I nine hundred, right? Exactly in the in the summer. Okay, now here's here's a question then. So, if they've both got the same driver, why do they sound very different? Yes, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, and the answer is uh, that first, like technically, there are minute differences. So it's the same platform, if you will, but mm. they have different coils, for instance. Uh, or, or they have slightly different dampenings in the end, but in the end, uh, that that doesn't make up for the cost or sound difference. The the uh, the uh, let's say the important part for tuning a headphone is usually not the driver, actually, because most most companies rely to a certain degree on platforms for that. Yes, uh, but on the acoustic system surrounding it, so that you have different uh, different dampenings, different back volumes, for instance, uh, a different resonator in the front. So these are tools that you can use to to tune a headphone. As an example, for over-ear headphones, because it maybe is very easy to follow as a concept, um, there's uh, the earpads always make a huge 
huge difference in terms of how a headphone sounds. Yes. Um, and um, there, for, for instance, the 559, which was our very entry-level headband product, which we just discon discontinued, mm -hmm. um, it had much denser earpads than the higher-end models, HD599 or HD560S, for instance. Um, and that made up a big part of, of that it was just much more warm out of the door than, than the other models. So if you put in this uh, very thick earpad on the HD560S, which is more of an analytical uh, or on neutral headphone, then it Im immediately gets like four or five dB of everything below one kilohertz, which completely upends the sound balance, of course. Huh. <laughs> um, so, so um, and that happens because more air can, uh, or the air is basically more trapped in front between the ear and the headphone transducer. So if you had no earpad at all, you wouldn't have any bass response because it's not a subwoofer, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And you have to trap air to a certain degree to enable a good bass response with the headphone. But but if you do it too much, then uh, then actually the, the air is, becomes a big resistance in front of the headphone driver. Mm -hmm. And that means on the one hand that, uh, that you lose high frequencies. So in effect, the headphone driver becomes more heavy in action. And on the other hand, um, ba basically the the slow frequencies, if you will, and that would be below one kilohertz, uh, they, they get amplified because they can't escape as as easily. Um, yeah, so 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 that is an example of that. There's no change to the transducer at all, mm -hmm. but the sound changes tremendously. And also, actually, you can have the same transducer, and there's not just a change in tuning but also in the perceived technicalities of it. So if you dampen a transducer much more, so if you make it much harder for air to uh, escape, mm. so for example, with a denser earpad, um, then it will sound slower because it actually is. So a transducer's weight is not just like the coil, which in a dynamic transducer would probably make up like 70% of the or 60% of the weight. And then there's mm. this plastic, which weighs nothing. So it's maybe 10%. But the rest, 20 or 30%, is actually the air. And, and um, so if you increase this percentage of, of, of air rate, then, of course, an entire transducer gets heavier as a process. And a heavier transducer means then uh, less high frequencies, less brilliance, it is slower. You don't have the same impulse response. Um, while, on the other hand, opening up the headphone and removing dampening usually yields more clarity. Okay. I mean, you probably heard me unzip a couple of earphones there yeah. because I'm just, um, I'm just, I've got in front of me the IE 900 and the IE 300. Yeah. Now I can see that the earpieces, I think, are roughly the same size, mm -hmm. which I think is what you refer to as the the earshell platform, right? Uh, but, yeah. But they're but they're not the same materials. Mm -hmm. So. Obviously, I guess an earshell's material will, will play into its sound as well, because the way I see it is an earshell ear, ear that houses the dynamic driver, in your case, is like a little room that houses a speaker, right? It's like the, to me, it's like the room in which speakers sit, but right next to your ear. Yep. So could you tell us why the earshells are made of different materials for the 300 and the 900? Uh, certainly. So, uh, f first, uh, your I I need to split hairs a little bit so that uh, this transducer we've made is uh, it has a little back volume, what we call. So you probably know what a normal transducer looks like. So it's just this magnetic steel part in the back, and mm -hmm. then you have this plastic diaphragm in the front. 
-hmm. uh, and it's round. <laughs> That's sort yes. of what it is. <laughs> and um, what the, makes our uh, our um, True Response Transducer special is that it at the assembly machine it gets what we call a back volume attached to it. So it's a little plastic cup, if you will, mm -hmm. um, that sits then at the back of the transducer. And um, the size of the cup also determines and determines a lot the sound, for instance. So if it's larger, then the transducer has a, a bigger resonance room. And uh, that means that the resonance shifts down. So for instance, to like 2 kilohertz or 1.5. And if it's a smaller cup, then it will shift up to 3 kilohertz. Mm -hmm. So that is also one, one way of tuning. And what mm -hmm. this cup also does is that it removes actually impact of the housing to a certain degree. Oh, so okay. what what other in ears have is um, if you need to use a actual shell for tuning, um, then if you have some sort of leakage in there, then this will also affect the sound. Um, so what this uh, the spec volume enables us to practically close the close the acoustic system of the transducer um, from any outside interferences which may occur. So this mm -hmm. saves us from from any variation on the assembly line, and that the transducer itself basically already plays like a finished headphone, um, with one exception, and that is actually what we call the nozzle. So that would be the front part where you put the ear tip on, mm -hmm. um, and that uh, affects the sound a big time. And that is where the material is really really important, uh, and it's the same. So so the i three hundred uses the same material for the nozzle and the shell. So, which is, uh, I, I think, a PA plastic, mm -hmm. and the I900 has aluminum then mm -hmm. for, for both parts. Mm. And the PA plastic we chose because um, it actually has a dampening effect. So, uh, we wanted to reduce the treble a little bit and take out a little bit of excessive energy um, because the issue is that the ear canal itself, um, especially once you close it down and change its volume, if you will, then suddenly it's the resonance within the ear canal becomes unnatural. And then suddenly uh, from nothing you have a resonance maybe at seven kilohertz or eight or six. Who knows? Depends on how you how deeply you insert. Uh -huh. Um and, and um that can be a little bit uh yeah. Uh, so some people are more more sensible to it and others just like it. It's personal matter. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, we wanted to, to reduce the travel energy a little bit there. And um, this this plastic has a property to sort of um, reduce energy. So so um, it is li like a damping material you put put in your room, maybe that it okay. captures some of it, that it absorbs a little bit of the acoustic energy in the air. Mm -hmm. And on the I nine hundred, the aluminum, which is a metal, which is really really hard, which is really reflective. That doesn't do it at all. So there you get really 100% the full-blown <laughs> energy, if you will. Um, so yes. uh, no uh, no damping at all. Uh, and that actually increases the or changes the sound substantially. So your assertion is, is still correct that the material matters a lot. But you've also got, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, you'll forgive me for sort of talking about what's in front of me right now because mm -hmm. no one can see it because yeah. this is a podcast, but... I noticed that on the 900, there's a little, I think there's an, like an exit air hole just above the, the logo plate. Yeah, exactly. And on the 300, there might be one actually on the logo plate, but it's much smaller. Yeah. But So could you tell us what they do? 
Yeah, um, it is. Uh, it is also a ventilation hole for air, so it doesn't do much for tuning. But mm -hmm. um, still, in the end of this little cup I told about uh, on the this uh, back volume on the transducer, yep. there's also a little hole with a with a damping paper, which then influences a lot the base. So if you put a lot of damping behind it, then the transducer has more difficulties moving, and then you have less base. And if you put less damping paper behind it, then it can move more easily, and you get a lot more base. Um, and what is important for that is that actually this uh, this ventilation can ventilate somewhere. So if the entire earphone shell would be closed up, then uh, then basically the air in the ear cup shell would be very very stiff. And if the transducer tries to move inwards, then then it still would have a very hard time. So it is very important for us that it is open to a certain degree. Hmm. Um, but but. It just needs to be open. That's all there is to it, um, to this hole. <laughs> so it's not really like a port on a speaker? Uh, no, no. It, oh, okay. Uh, so, I, I mean, it would basically function as a, as a requirement for the, for the port to work. So, so the, the thing you can't see, that would be the port for the speaker. But imagine if, if the speaker port would be covered up. That is what it would be like if we didn't have that hole in the, uh, in the shell. Gotcha. I understand that. Okay, so... But you've also, I think you've got some, uh, this is only stuff I've read on your website. You'll have to forgive mm -hmm. me for being vague. But in the 900, you've used Helmholtz resonators to, I think, extend the treble out? Or it, am I wrong about that? Um, yes and no. Um, <laughs> so so it's again about dampening the the, the treble um, mm. to the exactly right amount. And uh, yeah, that, that is really what makes it special and what makes a Helmholtz resonator special hmm. um uh, yeah if if i may just spend a minute on it so no the i want you to because I, I would love okay. you to explain what a helm holtz resonator actually does for yeah. all of us who are not quite 100 percent crystal clear on it yeah um yeah so so it was invented by a german physicist or something in the like 1900s mm -hmm. so this guy called helmholtz and uh i, I guess um I, I think he wanted to to become a physicist and his mother told him there's no money in it stop it uh, <laughs> and he so became, he became a doctor but still did, did experiments on the side because he was bored mm -hmm. uh, and the concept is that um a certain volume of a um of a bottle he used then um but it could be any any um what anything that can let contain air mm -hmm. um so so he he took a bottle and he found out that a certain um shape would then facilitate a certain increase of frequency of some sound or decrease of frequency in sound so mm -hmm. and depending on how long the the um the bottleneck is and how thin the bottleneck is and how large the volume of the bottle is then you could tune specifically at which frequency it should improve or, or, or i mean increase or decrease the amplitude oh, and okay. in the uh, in the application of the in-ears we have a little cavity in there um with a little bottleneck if you will into the into the nozzle where the transducer sound comes out Mm -hmm. And you can imagine it that there, um, that sound is always an exchange of high pressure and low pressure fields, right? Yes, yes. And um, so imagine that the high pressure field arrives at the bottleneck, and then it presses in the this air pressure in the bottle, and so this energy in the bottle is, is stored, and then the low pressure field comes along, and then this pressure is released again, and it equalizes this pressure. Mm -hmm. um, so it is basically a passive ANC system, if you will. Um, right. So, um, and that can be tuned then to a very specific frequency to work 
um, to decrease it sound level a bit. And the great thing about that is um, if you work with something like just the material for the i300, or if you work with putting a fleece on top of the transducer, then you can just really uh, do a, basically a filter. So it just works upwards from 3 kilohertz to whenever that that you have a decrease of maybe 5 dB in the treble. Mm-hmm. Um, and the great thing about the Helmholtz resonator is that we can really pinpoint a certain certain frequency where we think it's too much and and retain the rest we want to keep. Um, and on the other hand, also leave the transducer performance unaffected. So if, if you have a fleece on top of the transducer, this again is damping that which may make the transducer slower. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that is also something that we obviously do not want generally. Um, so, so this I900 approach is really that we have really focused with only using this, uh, these Helmholtz uh, resonators to, to shape the frequency response to exactly what we wanted to have. Um, and, and that is what makes it unique in, in our lineup. So it sounds, in my opinion, uh, it retrieves enormous amount of detail. Um, it, it has an incredible high frequency extension. There's no obvious peaks or something. I think mm-hmm. it has slightly elevated travel, travel. Um, but, but overall it, uh, it really sounds like a high end speaker, if you will. Um, <laughs> and that is no, something that, that not every earphone can do. <laughs> I really would agree with you on that. It does. It does sound like a high end hi-fi speaker for sure. Um, I'm just. D- did you have you put several Helmholtz resonators in series before the output nozzle? Is that how you've tuned it? Uh, yeah. So th- that was also basically something that we <laughs> that was a learning within the project. Hmm. So um, in- initially, we we just tried it out with uh, without resonators, and it was just this aluminum nozzle, mm-hmm. and we found that there was just this uh, very extreme peak in the treble, so something like seven or eight dB. So it was really uh, not what we would like to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the problem was that we already decided, actually, we, we wanted to mill this entire housing and to, uh, and all the components because the craftsmanship was also really important for us in this project. And um, it is fairly hard to um, then make or, or, or to then do certain geometries uh, in this very small milk part. And then one bright en- engineer had the idea that we um, sort of mill it in from the backside. That, and there are s- some renderings on the on the website, hopefully, mm. from that, uh, that you then have three Helmholtz resonator chambers that each um, attack a certain frequency. And I, I don't have them on, at the top of my mind right now. I think it's like 7, 8, and 9, 9.5 kilohertz or so. Mm-hmm. And um, the the funny thing is also that that it's not just that you add up all the functions of the Helmholtz resonators and that is what you get, but they also somehow interact with each other. So right. it's not yes, not just an <laughs> it's not just an easy calculation of what you do, but you actually have to try it out and listen. And that was uh, I can tell you actually a fairly tedious experience because it, w- it was always a difference of like plus one dB at eight k and minus two at nine. And uh, then like two other variations of that. And then you have to sort of test listen and see, okay, which one is now the one you prefer the most. Hmm. Um, and we went through th- something like, uh, I don't know, probably 40 va- variations or so uh, until we were satisfied. So um, uh, so in the end, it was worth it. But at the end of it, I also for why I couldn't listen to it honestly <laughs> because the process was really um 
uh, I unfortunately I also try to go into the negatives of it. So where 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 would it become too too intense, especially for some modern low dynamic music? Uh, um, sometimes it can be a bit harsh. That's the mm. reality of it. It's not the most versatile in ear. Um, and then if you always try to find out these very harsh songs where, where, where it doesn't work at all and where then which candidate works still the best for it. And that's, of course, not a super nice music listening experience, but I I think in the end it paid out and uh, it's, I think it sounds very unique and it's actually the most successful in our lineup. <laughs> Interesting. So can I just be clear that you you had to do the final checks on the Helmholtz resonators output? just by ear you couldn't do it with measurements only yeah absolutely so so of course we did measurements of everything mm -hmm. uh, but but uh, it was always blind tests so it was just abc uh, take the one you like the most uh, and then with the most experienced listeners and the one who had to decide in the end uh, which was me <laughs> and <laughs> uh, yeah and try to finding uh, uh, also an agreement in the group because as you know in ears also very a lot depending on the person who listens to them. Mm. Uh, so that's, of course, another story that I'm just one person and it will sound different for every other person. That's a reality. I mean, I'll tell you from a personal point of view, what got my attention of the 300, because I bought that myself, was, was its size. Because I'm a big fan of small in-ear monitors because the big chunky ones, they're good and they can sound incredible, but they're not very practical sometimes when you're out and about walking around in, you know, in a city or just, yeah, just in everyday life. You know, they're great for when you're sitting still. And one thing I like about all your of your, i.e. 200, 300, 600, 900, is that I can just put them in and I never have to touch them ever again while mm -hmm. I'm out and about. Whereas with bigger ones, I have to kind of maybe reseat them, reposition them in my ears, you know, every little while. So I like the small platform. And I, I wanted to ask you, was it a deliberate decision to go with something this small because you thought it would have more universal appeal? Absolutely. So uh, you nailed that. Um, and it also started during competitive research when we tried out a bunch of different competitors' earphones. And mm -hmm. some of them sounded also really good, obviously. Um, but, but they wouldn't fit uh, the ear of my acoustic engineer. And <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that is already a sign where you know, okay, I, I will never do that because first, obviously, uh, my acoustic engineer needs to be able to work with a headphone. Um, and then... Uh, on the other hand, of course, if you just exclude certain certain users from buying your product, it's commercially just not a smart choice. Um, but mm -hmm. um, what, what some people may not be aware of is that really the the major market for in ears is Asia. So and it's not close. So they're like at least three or four times as large as every other region. Really, that big. Um, so so wow. when we built these products, we actually like ninety percent considered only Asian input and user studies and so on and focus groups and um asians are a little bit uh, in terms of economics they tend to have a bit smaller years mm -hmm. so that factor is even even increased and and we see that also of course for open and open headphones that if you have a very very large headphone um that then and it needs to seal well then you really quickly get a problem with small heads i yeah. see so could do you have i mean do you have any research, not research data, but, well, no, let me ask you your opinion. I mean, why do you think IEMs like these are more popular in Asia than anywhere else in the world? 
Oh, um, I'm actually noticing it right now. Um, in a way, because I'm not in Asia, but um, I, I, you, you asked me to put on a closed headphone, and I was first really, really embarrassed because I looked around in my room and I, I didn't see a closed headphone at first, <laughs> <okay>. and <laughs> and I thought, oh God, um, I was just listening to a prototype over the last weeks, and I just gave it back to the engineer, and now I don't have anything on my hands. I thought. But then in a, in a pile of HG 600 style headphones, I found an HGA 20, which I have now on my ears. Okay. And, and, uh, now after like, uh, 30 or 40 minutes of talking, it's already, already getting a little bit of, a little bit hot under the ears, I have uh -huh. to say. And, uh, in Asia, this always gets exemplified or just, it's, it's just so much more extreme because they so often have like 27 degrees. Uh, like maximum humidity. So using over ear headphones is just not an option for them. And okay. so that is one part. And the other one is that, um, we also in Europe are, are used to larger flats and, uh, or even have our own houses. Mm -hmm. And the reality in, in Asia is, of course, also a very different one with mega cities having tens of millions of inhabitants. Mm -hmm. And, um, if you have a very small flat and you have noise all around you, then first an open headphone or a speaker is not the perfect choice to, uh oh um to to really um enjoy your music mm -hmm. so you also immediately want isolation and in ear store isolation the best so from that point of view um it's also sort of logical why they would go that way right so you're you're suggesting that not only uh in ear monitors popular in asia because they're good for i guess when you're commuting to work or going to school or whatever when you're yep. out shopping but also just at home yep. because everything is so um well i guess everything is just so close right i mean yep. i mean i'm in portugal right now and it's it's i'm much closer to my neighbors across the street than i would be if i were in berlin um and this is i mean these are cultural variations that i guess if you've only lived in one place in your life you probably wouldn't be aware of or think about too much. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I noticed that, you know, cause I used to go to J Japan a lot to their headphone shows and I've not been since COVID. Um, and I want to go back, but you know, it always struck me that the, the dedication that enthusiasts in Japan have for the portable audio space is just astonishing, you know, because yeah. a lot of people in, well, especially in Tokyo might spend four hours on a train every day coming in and out of the city. Yeah. So crazy. I guess that's a fairly strong incentive to have a good <laughs> audio setup, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Can we talk about the IE600? Because I think that one came after the 900. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So what, what were you trying to achieve there? Because you've got like 300 as your entry-level marker. You've mm -hmm. got IE900 as your flagship. Yeah. So 600, I guess, was, was splitting the difference or was there more to it? Um, yeah, so if you want to go historically, then, uh, the, it started to, that we wanted to launch all three products at once. And, mm -hmm. um, so development started, uh, in the beginning of 2019 sometime, we did a lot of user research and so on. Mm. Um, and then COVID hit and, uh, some of us went into short time working, which was a program in Germany to sort of, uh, may, uh, yeah, ease financial burdens of companies yes. and, yeah. Uh, and the team noticed, okay, we won't be able to, uh, to ship all three products at once. We'll have to focus on two. And of course we'd go for the flagship and the entry level model. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually I, I, I joined the team in, in the mid of 2020. So when the development was already well underway and basically almost fully defined for 
for the i300 and 900, mm -hmm. while the i600 had been parked. Um, and my predecessor, Ronja Haste, um, so she, she did, did a really brilliant job with all the re user research and she visited Japan and Korea and, and China and so on. And, uh, built basically all this architecture of a very small uh, in-ear, which is mm -hmm. uh, very fitting because she has a woman also had, uh, woman also had smaller ears, for instance, um, uh, which are supremely comfortable. So these are all really values that uh, have to be mainly attributed to her. And um, yeah, and the flagship, of course, um, that was supposed to really go go all out on the values that we thought the brand stands for. So mm -hmm. with this precision milling that also reflects the precision in the sound, I think the i900 does it incredibly well. Mm -hmm. um, the the i300 is, uh, is of course more industrialized with, with the plastic housing, which is more economic to build, mm -hmm. but then brings really, really high quality sound to the masses. And uh, what both products did um, is that they still continued this uh, legacy Sennheiser in-ear house sound, if I may call it like that, mm -hmm. so that uh, parts of the industry had moved on to some sort of uh, diffuse field tuning, if you will, uh, while, while Sennheiser always had a little bit less in the present switch at 3 or 4K, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, and that is also for what our platforms were built for back then. So this, uh, this back volume, which is very important for tuning, that... Um, that was in that specific size to, to enable that that tuning. Um, and of course, what we got as a feedback from a lot of, from the community is that they wanted something that is more closely aligned to this understanding of a diffuse field tuning. Um, and I, I want to emphasize, emphasize here because maybe it interests some users. Um, so I, the, let, let's say, if we really want to go back, then um, the, First origin of that would be the old Orpheus um, that we said that the most optimal nuclear sound would be diffuse field loudness optimizer um, equalization. And what mm -hmm. that means is that you have a bunch of speakers around you and you just play noise. So just a white noise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, then you put on the headphone, um, the open headphone, very importantly. Um, and then you specify the noise suddenly to uh, a certain frequency band. So just two thirds. And and then you um, manipulate the the loudness of the headphone so that it matches exactly the loudness of the diffuse field around you, and that helps you to get the maximum amount of interaction with your body and so on, and your uh, your pinner, um, so so that in the end um, the sound is as scientifically neutral as you can get it. Okay. Um, so, so for instance, that's also where you get this peak at three kilohertz from because there the pinner reacts very strongly. And so you're, if you are just in a noisy field, then automatically, even though the noise itself is neutral, the three kilohertz will be amplified. And okay. so if you put on a headphone, then you will also adjust this upwards. And this has been taken over also by the HG600 series. Um, and so some people thought it would be wise to translate that directly to, or more or less directly to closed back headphones or even in-ear headphones. And um, the problem with that is that you cannot do this sort of exercise with closed headphones because you'd have to take it out and in all the time. So you can't have a same time adjustment of the loudness. Right, right. And it sounds like a sort of marginal issue, but it's really not because it is an exercise that fatigues your hearing fast. And uh, in the end, insertion depth and so on always matters. So if you change it all the time, then also the response will change all the time. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so it's actually fairly important that you leave the headphone on all the time. Um, <clears throat> and so you cannot really do this exercise, which we think is really scientific neutral tuning to in-ears. And this is really just a, a, let's say, just a tuning by analogy um, that we got as feedback from the community um, and that we then implemented in the i600 and, for instance, also to a certain degree in the Momentum 2 Wireless 3 but which goes away from this original Sennheiser tuning. Um, and we also got a positive response from it. So that is also what you talked about, that people urged you to try the i600. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they really did. They were very vocal about it, even though on my sites were set on the 900. And yeah. I, was, I was expecting to like the 600 more and to find the 900 too scientific in its, in its um, to use your word, or too analytical. But I don't find that at all. Yeah. Um, so you're saying that the... The consumer demand was for, I mean, is there any other way to say it other than a less analytical earphone? If you will, um, I wouldn't even say it. It's really um, that people look a lot of frequency response graphs instead of listening. Um, and I, I don't want to affront anyone here because as an enthusiast, that's sort of your only choice. So, right. Um, I mean, if you're really lucky, you find somebody um, that produces content who just by chance al aligns with your preferences. But until, until you know what your preferences are, uh, obviously you can't do it. So really, that's your own your only stepping point into the hobby, hmm. unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And um, there's just this uh, this notion that apparently for in years this three kilohertz peak should also be present, and um, depending on who you ask that may or may not be the case and the funny thing is it probably mostly depends on loudness <laughs> so not only on the on the individual but how loud you listen so our original tuning is a little bit v-shaped if you will so a bit mm -hmm. more bass a bit more treble a little bit less mids and um that is basically that compensates for our hearing curve so I, um you probably know it but uh, you can google it probably that um, that our ear at different loudnesses is not always flat like a microphone, mm -hmm. but it becomes the quieter it gets, the less sensitive it is to treble and bass in particular. Yes. yes. So if you listen quietly, then the, the Sennheiser tuning is basically ideal for you. Mm. Um, and we would encourage that because it's very healthy. <laughs> and the louder you, you get, then a more linear tuning, if you will, would be preferable. So you, um, hang on. So I want to make sure that I'm understanding you correctly. Yeah. So you're saying that the 900 has more of a V-shaped tuning. Um, I, I would say so. Yes. Um, I, I mean, I, I actually think, for me personally, the bass is perfect. I don't think it's exaggerated or, or too little. I think it's exactly as it should be. Hmm. Um, I, I think the treble is a little bit on the on the higher side. It's it's not yet tiring, but it is a little bit more than neutral. See, I'm I'm not a loud listener, so maybe that's why I really am drawn to the 900. I don't crank it, but I also want to clarify with you what you're saying is that people saw frequency response graphs of the 900 yeah. and went, that's too bright in the treble. We want an earphone that's not quite as lively in the top end. And is that why you developed or why you voiced the 600 as you have done? Yeah, and it is really mostly this three kilohertz thing. Um, so, so that, that that there's this pinner interaction with over-ear headphones, which people also want to see in in ears, 
even mm. though the very important thing is, even though you may measure a headphone and an in-ear and you may want to have them the same shape, um, that is only half the calculation. So half of it is still happening in your head and not in your ear, but your head is making sense of what it is receiving and it is doing a whole lot of computation which measurements never show. So um, <laughs> I want to really urge everyone to take a little step back. So I know these measurements exist and it's fine for them. But mm. it's not an absolute truth. And you always see people arguing online that, no, you can't hear it like that because my measurement shows that it's different. <laughs> and the reality is people just listen like they are. So they have specific ear shapes mm. and they, they have different ear canal lengths and so on, which all really physically affects the sound. Yes. But most importantly, they also compute sound differently. And you can to have can have two very experienced listeners, professionals, tone meisters, that would prefer a, a 10 dB difference in the uh, in the base of an in-ear. It's that extreme. So um, so much is really up for individual uh, perception and, and taste. And one one example maybe also of just uh, anatomical differences is that we've seen for in-ears that the length of the ear canal can make for a difference of like four or five dB in the mids. Huh. So so imagine that four or five dB that completely changes the tuning of a headphone. And so, so you, it is really, really hard to, to always assume the other person should, should listen exactly as you, as you should. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I do understand why people talk about frequency response graphs a lot online, because that's all you can talk about if you've never heard the product in question. Yeah. And it, therefore, it's very easy to get drawn into that world of, well, this frequency response has this pin again, this one has, say, less pin again. Mm -hmm. And then you can look at a graph, maybe, say, of the IE900, and look at this frequency response and go, no, that, that's going to be horrible. Yeah. And then I think you're making a bit of a leap that I, I personally wouldn't make. I mean, yeah, it could show that the headphone might go in a certain direction for many users, but not all users. Yeah. But I'm just fascinated by the fact that it seems to me, from what you're saying, and I don't want to put your words in your mouth, but I'm interpreting this as that the people who are very, very interested, shall we say, in measurements seem to have steered the voicing of the 600 to where it is. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I, I, I find that, well, I guess it's good that you're responding to community <laughs> demand. I understand that. Mm -hmm. But it's community demand based more upon what's seen on a graph than what's actually heard in the ear. Yeah. And I, I would say that that has resulted in, yes, a cheaper earphone, but I don't think the 600 sounds as good as the 900. And I agree. And, and, and the funny thing is, like, eight out of 10 people tell me that, so that have actually listened to the products, tell me the i900 is much better than the i600. Right. And if you look on the internet, then you will find the reverse, that everybody says, well, the 600 is really good, and the 900 is a ripoff. And, <laughs> and, and that is so funny, because it's really this exact sentiment of uh, of trying to interpret graphs. And uh, I, I think it's very nice that people try to, to learn that much about the topic, which is yes. a very neat one. Mm. Um, but, but, but it's, uh, yeah, in the end, uh, you really have to listen to it. That's all there is to it. And it also, is that, that is that. I mean, but I think people, are, there, there is a very much a, a, a certain type of person who will only believe what he or she sees. Yeah. And in the absence of hearing something, that's all they have to go on. And yep. I think that's what creates all the sort of all the all the tension on Facebook groups and forums. Yeah. But can I ask you? Okay, could is it possible, or would it theoretically be possible 
to voice the 600 closer to the 900, even though the material of the shell is different? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, as I said, the, the shell material doesn't do much, only the nozzle material. Mm. Um, and and um, so, so if, if we put the same nozzle onto the I-600, we, we could make it actually uh, very similar, <laughs> if you will. Right. Um, so, really, um, I, I since I, the I-600 is, if you will, my... My, my first real audiophile baby product so mm -hmm. so i also have a very soft spot for it and i i really really like it but still um so my i i know i've done my job pretty well when i i listen to my headphones and just do something on the side and at some point my attention is just drawn to the music and i stop doing what i'm doing and and i just mm -hmm. focus on the music so being able to zone out um so i first had that with my h800 when i was a student and and I tried to recreate that. And uh, I frequently have that with an i900, but I don't have it with an i600. I think that's amazingly frank of you to say that. And I really do appreciate you saying that because I I kind of agree. Yeah, I do agree with you, but <laughs> I just find it kind of both amazing and hilarious that the measurement people have essentially almost forced your hand to pro produce what I would say is an inferior sounding product. Which um, <laughs> well, <laughs> in the end, uh, it is a different choice, really. So, so we can say, of course, that we prefer one over the other. But yes. as I said, it it can be just a function of how loud you listen. That's uh, as as easy as it can be. Mm -hmm. And then on the, on the other hand, um, the, um, we also already always see the market success, of course, what people do not see, um, and we see that the i nine hundred, both in units but also in turnover, obviously the easily outsells the i600 which you would never guess based on the online reception of either product um whether i600 was sort of the uh, revolution because sennheiser suddenly decided to tune like the rest of the industry hmm. um and and actually the i200 then can be classified as a baby i600 and i think that actually makes a lot of sense but uh, we can dive into that later <laughs> um yeah. I see. Okay, because the IE200 is, is, is relatively new, isn't it? And I, I'm yeah. wearing them right now to do this podcast. Um, so that, so would you say that the the 900 and the 300 are related or not really? Yes. Yeah. You would. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So and, then uh, yeah. and then the 600 and the 200 are related. Yeah. So so both are basically the baby version of the other. Ah, um, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what what separate? So of course we. D took different uh, strides in the tuning of the products, but also what separates them is really the quality control. So I go back to the manufacturing part mm. that um, that we have very good consistency on our production line. Um, but what is really, really important, for instance, for soundstage is, is that both channels are exactly the same. And mm -hmm. usually on a production run, all transducers are within like a 2 dB window, which is really really good I, I, <laughs> unfortunately i can't tell you what, what it would be on on a normal line but it's really as good as, as you can go right and, and for the i900 and 600 we really dedicatedly only pick the transducers which perfectly match together so that you get really perfect imaging so that is a very unique thing hmm. and uh, then the other one is that we also select for the lowest distortion so there's still a tumbling mode somewhere around one kilohertz for the for our mini transducer mm -hmm. and that can sometimes then be a, like a little very narrow distortion peak of like 0.6 uh, percent thd which 
you probably wouldn't hear, to be honest. But uh, but for the IA 900 and 600, we eliminate all these transducers and only select those that that are really perfectly clean. Um, so these are really the ex extra measures to make sure that that you really get your 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 money's worth. <laughs> right, I see. Can we talk a bit about cables? Because I know that we've oh, talked yeah. a lot about ear, ear shells and things like that. And if I may be so bold, I think mm -hmm. the, the cable that comes with these earphones is probably the one thing that I'm not so, I guess, crash hot on. Like mm -hmm. I'm, I, I like them, but I don't love them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because, well, maybe, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of pouring at the, the 600 right now. And when it comes out of the, the case, it, you know, it, well, I guess this one's coming apart quite okay but sometimes it gets a bit tangled up yeah uh, i i know what you mean right and that's actually what we improved i hope a little bit in the i200 mm. um <laughs> so the 200 has like a braided cable right yeah exactly so can you t can you tell us how much if at all the cable influences the final sound of the product uh so our opinion at Sennheiser is, uh, is that uh, as long as it's a good conductor, then it will not affect the sound. Um, okay. However, we of, of course know that uh, th there are some people that believe otherwise, and, and we are not in any way against it. Again, for, for, for the reason that we cannot know what other people hear. It's really, uh, and honestly, a lot of it is really a psychological factor. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I'm not the one to harshly say, no, you're all wrong. <laughs> we, 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 we just found for ourselves there uh, are so many things that that influence sound uh, th that we we feel the cable is really the the least of our worries. Um, so so I do not want to completely be diminutive of it, but we much rather think about the transducer and uh, basically in which environment it plays, how much dampening it has, and blah blah blah, um, where we can easier recreate that. So if I was to put the the, the the 200 cable on the 900 it would sound exactly the same yes i i mean that it should measure the same mm. um <laughs> but of course people could say that it sounds different and i uh but to me it sounds the same i can say that <laughs> i mean you, you i mean well, no i would listen to your opinion as well because obviously you're developing these products so you've listened to them for hundreds of maybe thousands of hours mm -hmm. and i'm just i'm just interested in that because yeah the 200 has a thinner i guess yeah braided cable and it it, it does knot up sometimes but I think I actually, I, I do like it more. And if I were to change a cable on the 900, I would do it just for aesthetic reasons. Yeah. And, just for uh, something uh, that, you know, yeah. flows nicely. You know, and uh, I mean, I don't notice any sort of microphonics or not too much anyway. There's certainly like if I tap the 200 right now, you can probably hear me doing it. I'm hearing nothing in the earphone itself. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And really that is something we are planning to do. So <laughs> thanks for the heads up, but uh, we've also noticed and we've got a lot of generous feedback. Um, so so we, we plan to replace a straight cable from the 900 and 600 with a braided cable. Oh, I see. Because of the microphony. Uh, yeah. And, and also just to touch and feel and just to give you an idea of what happened. Um, so so as you probably already noticed, sometimes we have a bit of a, uh, let's say, attention focus on quality aspects. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, at that point, some engineers took it a little bit one step too far, I, I would I would say. And we have some metrics for robustness of cables. Uh, and there's something called a bending test over a sharp edge. So you take a cable and you would bend it over a sharp metal edge. So not mm -hmm. a knife, but it would be actually like 
uh, a, sh a sharp steel triangle, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and then you would bend it and see how many bending circles it, it would survive. Uh, and, and we did a competitor research and most cables would give out at like 200 to 800 so cycles, mm -hmm. um, which does not sound like a huge amount. But on the other hand, you very rarely bend a cable over a very sharp edge. <laughs> so yes, yes. so uh, probably these companies uh, also did their work on that subject. Mm. Anyhow, um, for the I-800, uh, the cable was not detachable. So of course, the uh, requirements were a little bit higher on mm -hmm. the cable and they thought up i think something like 2000 cycles uh -huh. and uh, then for the i800s it was even more it was maybe 3000 and uh, and then for the i900 some people then said oh well th this is even more expensive so we have to have higher quality and uh, somehow it jumped then from 5000 to 10000 uh, and that of course sharply sharply uh influences how the cable feels because you make it more resilient to this sort of stress by adding more material inside which can basically absorb the stress before it affects the connector mm -hmm. um, like a kevlar or something similar um, and so that is the reason why the cable got quite a bit stiffer than i, I would have initially liked um, so luckily the cables are exchangeable <laughs> well because um, you got the mmcx connected on on yeah, ends, right? yeah. <laughs> exactly. But nonetheless, we, we've become a little bit more, uh, let's say, we've c come back to the ground and uh, the, the I-200 cable is still super, super resilient. I think it still makes 8,000 bending cycles. So it's still, it's like 10 times industry <laughs> average. <Okay. laughs> um, but, 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 but I think it is really clearly um, feels much better to the touch. It does. Yeah, it does. But I guess that's an aesthetic consideration well i guess there's also the micro the yeah the microphonics of the other cable but they're not huge i don't think um yep. you've also just introduced uh custom is it custom ear tips for uh, these right this range yeah um so so we call them custom comfort tips uh, and before people get their expectations up they're only available in germany for now because mm -hmm. it's at the moment just a just a pilot uh project and uh what we do there, so um, as you may have been aware, the consumer part of Sennheiser has been bought by um, by Sonova last mm -hmm. year, and Sonova is uh, is the largest supplier of hearing aids in the world, and mm -hmm. um, that brings with it uh, a very unique opportunity, and that is actually having a lot of uh, so so that is something maybe that some people do uh, do not Im immediately know is that um, the the hearing aid market functions very differently from consumer from consumer electronics mm -hmm. because the manufacturer owns the channel. So so we sell our headphones usually to Amazon or to Best Buy or whomever wants to buy them, and mm -hmm. they would then sell them to customers. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, in the hearing aid market, the manufacturers frequently own the distribution channel. So Sonova owns Gers, for instance, that's the largest brand of them in Germany, uh, which is a large hearing aid uh, or, or a hearing care professional chain with 700 locations in Germany. So um, that's that's quite a lot <laughs> um, yes. for, for such a small country. And um, th that means if we have these uh, these uh, these facilities available, then people can easily get their, their ear print there. And that enables us to, on a short, uh, let's say, with very little effort to create custom custom ear tips. Now, what makes this very, very cool, and um, that is why I'm super excited about it personally, 
is that uh, you know these custom in-ears which are just completely molded to your ear mm -hmm. um, and then it's just your earphone and you, you can't resell it or anything uh, it's, yeah. it's just that way and on the uh, on the other hand there are sometimes some company that tries to make a custom ear tip based on a photo with your smartphone and we also tried that and first uh, results weren't super accurate and then it mostly uses the outer ear actually and that means that the earphone suddenly is like like Shrek, so it it sits outside of your ear instead of in your ear. <laughs> right. So so that that looks sort of bad with normal in ears, and it's atrocious with two wireless, which are even larger. Mm -hmm. So so that that really wasn't a sexy solution. And the great thing is here, it's really a replaceable ear tip you can put on your earphone, uh, but it really goes into your ear canal, and um, so the earphone sits in your just in your ear as it normally would, but it's still custom fitted to your ear canal. And personally, I always had the issue that after like an hour or maybe one and a half, earphones would get uncomfortable for me. And I tried a lot of tips, uh, but but at some point, there's just some sort of pressure feeling. And uh, and these custom uh, comfort tips are really the, f the first ones that, that I can really wear for hours and hours and hours. So uh, I, I never had that within ears. So I'm really, really happy with it. And on the other hand, um, it also shows a perfect seal, so you always get the best bass response out of it. So that is an acoustic reason why it's a really, uh, really great solution. So I'm really, really excited to see what uh, uh, what the interest is from our customers. Mm -hmm. um, so what you would have to do, you would order it from from our website, which is sennheiser-hearing.com, and then uh, you can make an appointment uh, at a hearing care professional from Gerst in your location or in your vicinity. And uh, they would, would make an imprint of your ear and mm -hmm. uh, send it out to a specialist, which is Audia. They produce this ear tip. Uh, and then after two weeks, it would be finished and you return to the guest store um, to really make sure that everything fits as it should. And um, then you're good to go. And yeah, I I'm really, really happy because it's sort of a barrier that we always had. So we always know that there's some demand for, for custom earphones and we always had questions about can we scale this approach and mm. um, is there a big market for it because a lot of these earphones are also super super expensive and this is fairly cost effective so if you buy it on your on its own it's 150 euros and if it's bought with a high-end earphone then you get a discount so for the i i i 900 you get it for free <laughs> if you buy oh. it directly from from sennheiser um so that is a uh yeah the, the cool thing about it. So so let's see how, what the reception is and if we can roll it out to more countries. But for now, it's, it's I think, really a cool next step uh, to really make the products much better to use. So you can pull off the the older universal tip and just yeah. then just push on the, the custom tip and then it yeah. just, it makes for a better seal in the ear canal. Yeah, exactly. Ah, so you get, I guess you would get closer to the the ideal response from the earphone, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, the normal ear, ear, ear tips are also not too bad at it. The problem with universal ear tips is, of course, always how do you measure it? <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the, so you'd have to make a universal or a, a custom mode of your measurement head, probably. Um, so so it's, it's a bit of a phil philosophical question. Uh, what is a good fit there? But overall, it is perfectly transparent, so you don't lose anything. And that's also something we've seen with other solutions that the sound tube if or the sound kennel if you will um is sometimes very thin and that actually means that it becomes an acoustic inductor 
Um, so that comes that cons concept comes from electricity and inductor that uh, that signal or that an electric uh, uh, signal at high frequencies gets dampened a lot. Mm -hmm. So so an inductor, which would be a coil traditionally, if you just have a one one hertz. Uh, alternate current then there's no damping at all but at maybe 10,000 hertz then it would be dampened a lot and actually if you have a tube um then that is the same effect for acoustics <laughs> and and so if you would uh, have a uh if you would have a custom ear tip for instance or just a custom mold earphone um that had only a very small tube for your as a sound channel if you will mm -hmm. then that would really just cut off the high frequencies And we are uh, very happy that we found a solution where it's a little bit like a waveguide inside uh, that really leaves the high frequencies untouched and it's perfectly transparent. So is it the case, like, I want to just finally ask you about your measurement setup in your lab. Mm -hmm. When you're measuring a pair of earphones, let's say you're developing them, how, I mean, how crucial is the the position of the earphone on your, I don't know whether you, what kind of, fake head you use or what kind of ear molds you use or anything like that but could you yeah could well first of all could you tell us what you use to measure earphones and then tell us about the 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 variations that can take place if you get the the, the position not quite right uh yeah uh, i mean i personally don't measure a lot because i uh i hope my my acoustic engineers uh do it sometimes <laughs> right. but i i rather have them evaluate by ear actually mm -hmm. but um yeah we we use what is uh, the best on the market so we have the uh the brule and kia 5128 at the moment as basically our flagship device mm -hmm. which we believe is probably the most accurate however um many of our engineers are not intimately familiar with it and it's always basically always a tool you have to get used to to sort of interpret it yes and that's also position the entire community is in right now so I hope you uh, you can bear with us. Uh, and then uh, we also just uh, use what has come up. So the older uh, care devices or the um, grass ones, which are fairly popular with a lot of uh, reviewers. And that is also helpful for us, of course, to, to just anticipate what everything will look like for influencers, for instance. Um, but primarily, um, yeah, I, I would say for in-ears, it's actually the the simplest as somebody who rarely measures uh, because you can basically just put it even on a coupler without an ear so so okay. the the measurement microphone itself is really just a metal tube mm -hmm. and you can really just stick it in and and you get a relatively accurate reading within the limits uh, of these primitive measurement systems um But uh, why for for an open headphone, of course, uh, or on over ear headphone, the interaction with the ear is of course super important. Yes, yes. Um, and so suddenly the entire surrounding is is much more impactful. And also the original standards for these uh, older measurement systems has been developed on the basis of hearing aids. And why an in ear phone is not a hearing aid, it's a lot closer than an HD eight hundred, for instance. Right. <laughs> so, um. So, so I would say uh, measuring in ears is comparatively easy. Hmm. That being said, of course, insertion depth matters a lot, as I've already told you also with humans, that it shifts the resonance frequencies uh, wherever, depending on how, how deep you put it in. So so the engineer needs to, needs to find somehow a standard position maybe to use or something that aligns with his ear kennel, um, whatever. 
So, but, but we really handle it on a, handle it on a very individual basis so that every engineer has a measurement system that he's very familiar with and that mm -hmm. he can work with and interpret the results well. And, um, then as a device that we think is, is the best and that we want to work in the future towards is the Spool and Kia 5128. But we don't have that yet on every desk. Okay. So if I wanted to start measuring, hypothetically speaking, if I wanted to start measuring IEMs, what would I need to buy on a most basic level? Uh, on a most basic level, you would uh, need then uh, such a uh, Grass 43, for instance, which mm -hmm. I guess will set you back uh, like 10,000 <laughs> 10, euros or so. Okay. Uh, okay. I, I, I'm not, I, I don't look it up every day. No, sure. But uh, like ballpark. <laughs> so, so like, I would definitely need that. I couldn't just use a, like a basic a portable system. I don't know what, I, I mean, I don't know what's available on the market, but I, I would imagine that you have a much better handle on than this than me. Yeah, no, I, I have to admit, I, I, I don't spend too much time on it. And then the question is basically how, um, that, that you need a generator of the signals, for instance, and, a, uh, and needs a software that, that interprets the signals and it all, then depends whether you get it directly from the manufacturer or whether you buy something extra. And I have to admit, I'm not in the, in the depth there, but uh, I guess you would really set back around 10,000 euros and to get this basic measurement system. Um, mm -hmm. But, but I, I have to say, even though it is really, really interesting, the topic of measurements, I, I, I'm not sure if it moves us in the right direction at the moment. So... It is, it is interesting to see the squiggly lines and for us as engineers, it's necessary. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can assure you that we, uh, th that we always try to go for the best sound. And sometimes we look also in the, at the lines to see what some influencers may think about it mm -hmm. <laughs> or, or key opinion leaders, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, but it leaves out so much of the other aspects of hearing. And one part of it is obviously openness, for instance, of a headphone. Um, so that directly impacts uh, a basically the your perception of how brilliant it sounds so if, if it's more open then it will just directly sound more brilliant even though the amplitude has stayed the same in the treble mm -hmm. um uh, on the other hand um the impact of bass for instance the need for high bass amplitude decreases the more open the headphone is so if you have an electrostatic headphone or even a loudspeaker you don't need much of a bass shelf at all you can just have it more or less flat and it will sound good enough or, mm -hmm. or very neutral. Um, and, and the more you close up the headphone, the more you need a bass shelf to compensate for the lack of body impact on psychoacoustic, um, like effects. And, and then the in-ear suddenly needs a 10 dB bass shelf to sound natural. Um, huh. so, so the i900, for instance, has, has a substantial bass shelf on a measured basis, but, <laughs> but it really doesn't sound like exaggerated bass. It's punchy. It's, it's fun, but it's not like, a, a base monster. <laughs> um, right, but you could look at the graph and think it was a base monster if yeah, that's all you've exactly. seen, right? Uh, and uh, uh, so, so openness would be another factor. I generally talked about psychoacoustics, that, that it is just a black box within your head. Uh, the important part is then variation. So I think where measurements could go in the future is that you don't only have a standard measurement device, but also have like a maximum ear kernel length and minimum ear kernel length, for instance, so that you see sort of the corridor uh, in which the frequency response will move. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. Just as an example, right? And yeah. uh, then it, it sort of, it, it is very, 
it is so, so seductive and attractive to be able to pinpoint things you hear into a frequency response. But sometimes also things like detail you hear in the uh, headphone, they cannot be seen in there. It is sometimes just a function of how much the transducer is dampened. And mm -hmm. sometimes you see an interaction of that, but but uh, you can never see in a frequency response graph whether a headphone costs 2,000 or 200 euros. Um, and you can maybe make a sort of shot of at whether it will be sort of neutral or not, if you're familiar with the general acoustic system. Mm -hmm. uh, but it really doesn't give you any input at all on the reason why we audiophiles, I think, exist, or, or the, just audio enthusiasts, because I, I do not think this hobby exists for having a perfectly harmon flat sound, because then we all would just buy a JBL headphone for 50 euros, and we would be done with it. Right, yes. We, we, we buy it for everything beyond that. We, we buy it for the bass impact. We buy, buy it for the details. We buy it for the space in the music. Mm -hmm. And that is all stuff you cannot see in the <laughs> on the, the frequency response. And, and that is the reason why I, I would strongly urge everybody to uh, to trust your ears because your ears are really individual and it is really important for you that the headphone works well for you. And what anybody else says, um, of course, respect always your opinion, um, but but really it doesn't matter <laughs> for yeah, you. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, I mean, yes, it doesn't matter. It's probably a, a little bit strong, but I think, yeah. as you say, it's it's incredibly seductive, isn't it? to yeah. think that you could capture the essence of a headphone in a single frequency response graph. But it's also, it's a mirage because it doesn't, I mean, it, yeah, like you say, it tells you some things, but not everything. I mean, for example, like this idea of, say, head stage width, like how wide a headphone draws an image yeah. either in front of you or inside your head. I don't know how to measure that. Another, Here's a good, a good example, dynamics, right? Because I would mm -hmm. say, that the your true wireless iteration three is a, a pretty dynamic sounding earphone. Yeah, but I don't. Is there a way to measure that? I don't know. That's actually a, a cool one. So, so for instance, for openness, um, just for instance, maybe you could measure it because it's sort of it is an uh, it is a feature of how easily sound ex um, escapes your ear canal actually. So, if you find a, like a fixture that would simulate your ear canal, and then you have like a signal emitted at the eardrum or the equivalent of that and see how much the earphone uh, ba basically um, blockades that mm -hmm. that escape and reflects it back onto the eardrum. That is the feature of openness or occlusion, which is a reverse. So mm -hmm. that would be maybe one way to measure it just as a thought experiment. Mm. <laughs> um, and... Uh, what is another one? A space, you said. So one feature of that could be pinner interaction. It would, wouldn't be any, everything, but uh, your pinner on the one hand has an amplitude effect on it, but also it uh, it actually changes a little bit. It has impact on the time domain. Mm -hmm. So you get slightly later reflections of certain sounds at certain frequencies from certain angles and blah, blah, blah. So, so if you were to really focus on this pinner interaction aspect then you can probably capture the element that um that is um present in headphones with, with very large transducers that are angled um so so that would be maybe one guide at at space and headphones um for dynamics i'm honestly not 100% sure it uh, can be i think an aspect of of the headroom in a 
headphones so that mm -hmm. uh, at low frequencies that it distorts relatively little uh, and still at very high amplitudes. And I believe you would only measure that at very high, uh, let's say, <laughs> very high amplitudes that you would never listen to, like 110 dB or something. Uh -huh. um, but somehow we as humans have this capacity to, to have a feel for it nonetheless, even though we listen at much lower le levels. And these are sort of gut feeling ideas, <laughs> especially right. on the dynamic part. I'm really not sure on that. But um, the important part is um, it's it's not all just psychoacoustics. It's not just our individual experience, of course. There is a very important scientific element to it. Mm -hmm. And I believe we can measure and capture a lot of these elements. But the frequency response is too, too uh, narrow, in my opinion, at the moment. Right. Yeah, because I mean, I, I mean, I don't dabble on. Well, I don't read HeadFi too much. I go in now and again, and forums are of its ilk, mm -hmm. and I do see a, 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 in certain quarters a, a total obsession with yeah. frequency response graphs, and people will kind of dismiss a headphone or hail it as the champion of the month, yeah. just just solely on the tra on the frequency response, yeah. and I don't know. I just I find that. I don't know. I think it's more to do with behavioral psychology because mm -hmm. we all have to apply our own filters to the multitude of choices that we have. Yeah. So if we are looking for a new earphone, for example, we have to filter it somehow. And so, you know, with presented with a hundred choices, we might go, well, that graph I don't like. So I'm going to push that one away. That one I do. So maybe I'll go and listen to that. But it becomes almost like a, a snake that eats its own tail. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, honestly, it's it's unfortunately like a natural behavior, I think. So um, in the end, there's just so much noise on the on the internet or generally in audio, um, especially mm. if you're new to, to the hobby, then it's really hard to know who to trust. So a lot of people seem to be very not knowledgeable in the beginning, and uh, then they tell you a lot of stuff. And some of it is maybe more grounded or more suited for you, and and some maybe is less. But there's no way to tell. And the frequency mm. response is sort of the uh, like the the great equalizer, if you will, where everybody's looking at the same thing, and they uh, and then yes. you have an objective in quotation marks view of the headphone. And uh, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think the best example is the HDA20 I have on my head right now, mm -hmm. where most initial listeners, when we first showed the headphone uh, with altering the frequency response, were fairly fairly happy. And I'm not saying that they were all amazed because yep, it's, yep. it wasn't better than an HDA800. Uh, and that is what most people expected. So uh, that, that is the unfortunate truth. But but the first response was uh, relatively good. Uh, and then the moment the frequency response measurements unearth and it has a very unusual frequency response, uh, obviously hell broke loose and people didn't like <laughs> it anymore. Um, and it's suddenly the worst headphone ever, especially by those who haven't listened to it. <laughs> and, and there's a really, really funny anecdote actually on it um, mm. th that we have this fairly skilled engineer or, or very skilled. So I'm very fortunate to work with him actually. Um, and he has a very fine ear. He, he's been a, uh, like a sound engineer for, for a long time. He has a, a huge collection of microphones, uh, so probably worth 50K or something. Um, <laughs> so, so he's really a really crazy professional and mixed for, the, for some of the largest German bands. Um, and, and he's got the best analytic, analytical ear I, I know. 
Um, so he would be my so my go-to person. If if I wanted to make a pet phone as neutral as possible, I would put him in charge of the tuning. Okay. And um, he with every headphone, he immediately finds like five things he doesn't like. Um, and that is sort of natural because every headphone has resonances in the treble. Mm -hmm. um, because the the transducer, basically between the transducer and eardrum, there's always a sort of resonating space and you cannot get rid of it, unfortunately. It's just a general rule. So if you want an even treble, you always need to go with the loudspeakers, unfortunately. But anyhow... So, um, for instance, for the HD560S, when I gave him an, a prototype, um, and I mean, it's not perfect, but it has maybe one or two things that I would change, but overall, it is a pretty balanced headphone. And he also gave me back with, yeah, it's, it's sort of okay. Here's my list of six equalizers, uh, and then it's good. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, and, and, and he put on the HDA20, and, uh, I think he changed one thing, uh, and then he was happy and, and he always sort of makes his judgment in five seconds or so. So he's also really fast at it. Wow. And, um, then he put it on a measurement head because he hadn't seen the measurement of it. He's uh, not that much into the forums <laughs> and he couldn't really believe what he was seeing. And then he was replicating the measurement with an in-ear microphone in his ear and mm -hmm. the headphones. And it was practically the same. Um, so <laughs> that was a fairly f funny moment because this, uh, it shows in the end that even the most experienced listeners cannot reliably sort of relate listening experience to, to a frequency response measurement. Um, right. And, and vice versa, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that goes exactly back to our points that, that there's just such, so much more elements to capture that influence how we actually experience this frequency response. Um, so in the end, that is the only logical thing. Uh, yeah, but, but, and I do not want to push the HA20 in any way. So I, 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 it has a soft spot for me for one reason or another, but, uh, nonetheless, people can make their judgment. And, um, I, I do believe in the end, it was probably the performance was not as expected at that high price when the H800 existed at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I, I can completely empathize with the community's notion and how they feel about the headphone. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I would really urge to hopefully listen first, or even though it's very hard for many people, um, of course, to get the opportunity for that, but still to, uh, yeah, try to listen to headphones before making a judgment. <laughs> You know, I'll, I'll end on this because this is something that's been rattling around my head for the longest time. And I know that conversations like this tend to solicit a response as just basically Darko having a go at measurements again. And it's, re it's really not that at all. It's absolutely not that because I do find them fascinating. But one analogy that I've kind of got worked up in my head is like, imagine you want to buy a house. And you can stand in front of the house in the street. You've got the architectural plans and you can look through the letterbox and through the windows with the curtains that are slightly open, right? But that's all you can do. Now, to me, that's analogous to only having, say, the frequency response graph and maybe a couple of other measurements of, say, a headphone. But to really know whether to, as to whether you want to buy the house, you really have to have the keys to go inside and walk around and experience the space yourself, right? Do you see, do you see where I'm yep. going with this? I yeah, mean, maybe I'm, I love maybe it. I'm sounding uh, pretentious. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm silent because I love it. So, so. I mean, 
and I've never voiced this before, and I was actually going to going to save it for a different podcast, but I just <laughs> thought, no, this has come up, and I'm going to have to talk about this, right? So, because I I recently bought the house I'm currently sitting in. Mm-hmm. Now, there's it was a building site when I first saw it because it wasn't finished. Yep. Now, if somebody just showed me the architectural plans and said, and then maybe some three D renders, I would have maybe not have purchased it. But because I was allowed to walk around the building site and get a feel for the space and to see it and to experience it myself. I was like, yes, I can definitely see myself living here. Yep. And I'm so glad that I did. So that's maybe I need to work on my analogy description a little bit more, but that's, that's the way I look at it. Yeah. Right. So yes, the architectural plans are important. Being able to see, you know, what, an, a, a, what a house looks like from the outside, looking in and through the letterbox and through the windows is important. But nothing beats being able to walk through the front door and walk around the internals. Absolutely, yeah, uh, yeah. I think the analogy is, is fantastic. So, um, and I, I I couldn't agree more or or add anything to it. <laughs> well, that's marvelous. I'm, well, I'm glad to end on a positive note. Yeah, I'm glad <laughs> I didn't make a complete fall of myself there because that could have gone either way, couldn't it? Um, Yamo, thank you ever so much for a really really interesting conversation. And I really appreciate your insight and your time today. Yeah, uh, really happy to be here. I, I also had a marvelous time. We, we didn't really go into the core topics so so much. So, or actually, we we talked a little bit about the in years, but uh, I could have made more of a sales pitch out of it. <laughs> but but, uh, but I'm happier to be just authentic and 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 talk from my mind, if you will. No, you you're great. Um, I think you know everything you, that we covered. I'm very very happy with. So thank you. Super. Yeah, uh, I was happy to be here and I hope to be on here uh, at some point in the future as well. So um, yeah, it was a huge pleasure. Thanks so much. And to everyone out there, be be kind to each other. So I think we are all here in the same community of, of really loving music. And uh, we maybe have different ways of getting there, but I think we all have the same def- destination. So um, yeah, j- just keep that in mind. Everybody has their own opinion and uh, and have their own ears which, with which they listen. Absolutely. I think you've spent too much time on forums there, Yermo. Yeah, but... oh, sorry. 